Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We interrupt this broadcast before it was history. It was news. It appears as though something has happened in the motor. I said, those are shots. Man on the moon. We copy it down, Eagle. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. I'm Bill Curtis. It's been said that breaking news becomes the first draft of history. What's overlooked is how deeply we relied on broadcast journalists who met the adrenalized demands of those moments, often with courage and daring. Broadcast journalism has a simple, sober purpose, to keep the public informed through the best and worst of times. But the consequence of that labor is profound. As legendary newsman Walter Cronkite wrote, the free press is the central nervous system of a democratic society. No true democracy can exist without it. History has borne out that wisdom. But before it was history, it was news. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. The man landing on the moon was the great story of our century. I remember saying to myself, these men are crazy. NASA really didn't fully understand the meaning of TV. They didn't think about the historic documentation, video-wise, of such a mission. Stop everything. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. And watch us make history. I'm going to step off the land now. At the moment when it came, I found myself speechless. Cronkite was the Homer telling the song of this space odyssey. These guys were walking on the moon. One small step for man. I freaked. One giant leap for mankind. It was a moment never to be forgotten. I'm Brian Williams. In 1961, back when post-war America felt unstoppable and our future felt limitless, President John F. Kennedy boldly proposed to a joint session of Congress 
I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. Not everyone shared his vision. A Gallup poll at the time reported that 58% of the country actually opposed the idea. But as the space race developed through the 1960s, Americans quickly got on board. It was the height of the Cold War. The Soviets had already orbited the first satellite. They sent the first man into space, and in those early years, the U.S. was behind and playing catch-up. Having an adversary fueled the American space program, and the space program became rocket fuel for the legendary CBS Evening News anchorman, Walter Cronkite. I had been interested in uh, air aviation and I covered the air war during World War II in England and flew with the bombers and fighters. And as we began to experiment with rocketry after the Germans perfected it with their V-2s in World War II, uh, I was following our progress. So it was natural that I began reporting it. And I became our space reporter as well as anchorman. Uh, I loved the story. It was a wonderful story of achievement. And uh, everybody at Cocoa Beach at the Space Center, Cape Canaveral, was looking up. They were looking toward the stars rather than looking down with the depressed state of the world affairs, civil rights in Vietnam going on at the same time. So this was a relief story for, for all of us. There was this underlying reality that Cronkite and the news division we're constantly telling the story of Vietnam, constantly telling the story of issues relating to civil rights. Michael Russo was Walter Cronkite's desk assistant at CBS News. It just so happened that the astronauts, NASA, and the space program was kind of a, gee whiz, let's do that kind of thing. And it was kind of a positive news. So it fit, fit a piece that America needed. The television industry and NASA fell into a kind of orbiting symbiotic relationship. NASA supplied the remarkable live pictures from space. Television provided the excitement. The stories of those brave early astronauts, the astounding technology of all of it, made believers out of Congress and the public, and that meant funding. The old saying at NASA was, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. But not everyone was on board with that cozy relationship, and one important man in the middle of it was Dick Nafsker, a TV veteran hired by NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. The astronauts and a lot of the science departments were totally against television because it distracted from what they were doing. And when they went to the limb, they had to take off weight to put on a camera. They had to watch power. They didn't know what they could do for moon rocks to put on their spacecraft when they added a camera. And so there was negativism about cameras in general. NASA really didn't fully understand the meaning of TV. They never thought about the public wanting to see it. They didn't think about the historic documentation of such a mission. It wasn't until probably after launch that people started thinking about what this TV could mean. So they were arguing about it all the time. Wally Schrall was the commander of Apollo 7, and that was the first mission that I had TV on board. And prior to that launch, 
uh, Wallace Raw and the astronauts do a dry run at the Cape, and they suit up and get in the uh, spacecraft. And when he got in the spacecraft, he ripped his suit on the camera mount, and that was about it. He about had it with TV because he thought TV was intrusive, and it was watching over his shoulder. And of course, they can turn it on and off, but he just adamantly didn't want it. And he got up on Apollo Seven, and he wouldn't turn the camera on, and he refused. And of course, the back channels—these are all military people. And we use all military astronauts for submissions. And um, when they had their problem and the administrator wanted TV, that was a military order. He said, listen, American public paid for this thing, and we're going to have TV. Now, you got to remember, we were still not a priority. Once they got it on, and uh, the public was pretty excited, it was wonderful. And uh, so the astronauts, including Wally, started holding signs up of keep the cards and letters coming and all that stuff. And they were enjoying it. Joel Banow was the director in the control room for the CBS News coverage of the Apollo 11 mission. I was working with Walter as first a production assistant and then as an associate director, an AD. And so Mercury starts, that's a single spacecraft, and that wafts into Gemini. And so we were beginning to get practice on how to cover space. And that morphed into the special events unit. We didn't have it for the first few Mercury's. It was just, you're going to direct, you're going to produce, you're going to write, and that was it. But we formalized the special events unit, and Bobby Wessler was the director of the special events unit. One of the things, you know, that Wessler himself, Robert Wessler, the executive producer, created was a thing that eventually became the way in which the broadcasts were developed. There was the book, namely pre-written introductions to all the material that was on film or on videotape. The bank, that is the videotape and the footage of any number of of small documentary-like fillers. I mean, some of them were quite extraordinary. The one that uh, Orson Welles uh, narrated on the history of science fiction film is a classic. And it's the book, The Bank, and the lineup. The lineup being... When will this thing take off? When will this particular moment occur? So the lineup kept changing. Obviously, NASA would say T-minus two hours and counting. Well, that would adjust the the lineup, and Wessler and the people in the control room could uh, line up interviews around the world. They had many live remotes, so Cronkite could uh, talk to individuals pretty much anywhere they had a uh, camera and, and a crew. CBS was known back then as the Tiffany Network, and the face and voice of CBS News was the legendary Cronkite, who was given the title by opinion pollsters of the most trusted man in America. Cronkite had flown missions over Europe in World War II, he had covered Vietnam, but nothing triggered his curiosity and enthusiasm like the space program. And CBS News went all in, spending whatever it took. I think the first time I met him, I introduced my name to him. He looked at me and said, let's get to work. There was there was not, a, you know, kind of a let's go for pizza moment with Cronkite in that era. But 
he was an extraordinarily big figure. Clearly, it was stop everything and watch us make history. That was it. We all knew that we had to be part of what was a major broadcast. Did we know how it was going to turn out? Did we know there might be an accident? Did we know that there might be some unforeseen issue? Yeah. Not that we all talked about it, but, you know, there were contingencies. It's a live event. How it would unfold, we don't know. But I also have to mention that that particular production for CBS alone cost $2.4 million. There was a lot of money at stake. In today's dollars, it's like 20 million bucks. That's a lot of money for one extended broadcast that begins with a launch and ends with a, a splashdown. Yeah, I mean, Robert Wessler was the, I would always say, the Busby Berkeley of television news production and sports productions later on. More was better. And the more money he could get, the more people could hire, and the more bells and whistles he could add to the production. NASA reaches out to the networks, and we would receive a copy of the flight plan that the astronauts would use. And the flight plan relates to everything that they need, the engine burns, this, that, and the other thing. And so on a launch, you start a clock, the liftoff clock. And in the flight plan, every event is attached to a time. 12 hours, 22 minutes, 30 seconds, you fire your engine, etc., etc. We had Apollo 8, 9, and 10, which are actually the rehearsals for Apollo 11. They never landed, but they were checking everything out. So those missions finalized what I was going to have to do to cover that. And we knew from the very beginning that there was in the lunar land of the LEM, there was going to be a camera, a black and white camera. And so that is what you use to begin to think how we're going to put this on the air. But also, each network built full-size mock-ups of the lunar lander and the command module. James Wall was the CBS News stage manager responsible for setting up a replica of the moonscape in the Grumman airplane hangar, complete with an actual lunar module. CBS rented a hangar out at Grumman's, where they built their planes and so on and so on. And we decorated the hangar. We took black velour and hung it so it was blacked out completely inside. And we got rocks, which were simulated moon rocks. And they had a limb, a real limb. CBS, I think they bought it or rented it or whatever, but a real limb, and we had an astronaut. And what happened was they had me piped in to the transmission from the moon so I could hear everything that was being said on the moon. And so all of the different experiments that would be laid out, if you can remember that incident, they were laid out several experiments on the moon. And so each time an astronaut, would, whatever he was doing, we duplicated in this hangar. And that was just in case we lost transmission to the moon, and we did at one point. And although they put simulation, they super simulation up there so people wouldn't think that we were putting people on. As we got closer, we got set up, and I would 
talk to my special effects guys. We will go out and check all of our simulations there and the models, make sure everything is working. And also making sure HAL, H-A-L, HAL is working. HAL was one of the devices that I wanted to have created for the mission. For, for Apollo, where the movie 2001 opens up, and some of the guys and myself said, let's go over to Paramount Theater. We're on 57th Street, we went over to Broadway. Let's watch this film. And we watch it, and I am sitting there with my mouth open, looking at all those special effects with the models, and said, I gotta find out who did that. Doug Trumbull. So I called Doug up, I got his number, and I say, Mr. Trumbull, this is Joel Bano. I'm the director for the Apollo landing at CBS. How'd you like to work for us for that event? And he says, in two seconds, he said, I'm on. What do you want me to do? So what I wanted him to do is that there's a lot of printed information, texts and numbers that you need to project on the screen. So what Doug did, he took 16 millimeter projectors and motorized them and installed them in two rows on an iron frame work. These projectors could pan up and down and they could move left and right with any word or number projected on the screen. So when Walter first told the audiences about what we had here called HAL, we went there and we printed out, hello, Mr. Cronkite, it's nice to be here. Uh, my job for Walter was primarily to uh, hand him material that had been developed by Joan Richmond, who was an extraordinary researcher. And virtually every day we had bring down books and papers and research items that were being looked at. John Richmond had a research team with Beth Fertig and with Mark Kramer, who day to day would update the story as we got closer and closer to the launch. Hourly, I would say, not even day to day, it was hourly. We were able to simulate with beautiful animated action. So we did that for all the engine burning. And so when a burn would come, I would listen and I'd see the clock time and I'd give a cue to start that animation, roll the video. And the only other thing, the limb is carried in front of the command service module. And for it to come out, they have to blow panels away, and then they could undock. So we couldn't do that with real three-dimensional models to try and blow away these four panels. So we had to animate that at that same time. So rendezvous and docking, we use those small models. But again, I wanted different points of view. So we created two full-size mock-ups of just the front 
end of the command module and the docking port of the LEM so that we had a variety of views rather than a static, just one view of a LEM and its engine burning. So that was built in, you know, to everything we had to do. When they did the special event um, Lunar Day, they took the largest uh, studio they had, which, you know, they recreated it into a kind of a Disneyland type set. Two-story edifice, they kind of created, they put Cronkite on the second story and they had 20 cameras that surrounded the room. And I and the editorial people with uh, that w- wonderful uh, producer and Cronkite's alter ego, Sandy Sokolow, were running a small newsroom of about 30 people underneath Cronkite. Cronkite was above us. So there were teletype machines, typewriters, Andy Rooney, uh, Harry Reasoner, Roger Mudd, Howard Stringer, a a long list of who's who in journalism now. So I had the job of bringing the actual script from below up, and it required going around a circular staircase and bringing everything up and handing it to uh, Joan Richmond, who was not on camera level. She was like a maybe a foot below him, so you, you might see the top of her head, and then she would hand off the um, the copy to uh, Cronkite. All the programs of Apollo 7, 8, and 9, they were Earth Orbit. And an Earth Orbit program means that you're going to be over a tracking site for about seven minutes of video and audio, and then you lose a signal and you have to pick up another one. So we had tracking sites all around the world. We weren't going to outfit them all to have TV, we only outfitted a few of them, such as out of Goldstone, the Mojave Desert, Corpus Christi, Texas, Merritt Island. It wasn't regular TV, it was slow scan. 10 frames a second video, and broadcast was 30 frames. We had very low bandwidth, very low frame rate, and very low power. And that had to be for the spacecraft. So that's why the slow scan was chosen because we couldn't carry any broadcast camera. It took up too much weight and too much power. NASA administrators reached agreement with Australians to rent the Parks Australia telescopic site. It was a 210-foot diameter dish, similar to one we have in Mojave Desert, as opposed to our normal deep space antenna, which is on 85-foot, and that's at Honeysuckle Creek in Goldstone. So we went to big antennas to get more signal strength, but we still were unknown what kind of signal we get. So there are a lot of unknowns, and we had to go fly on our own and hope everything worked perfect without any backup. Cronkite, as you well remember, did politics and space. Other things he was not as interested in, but what he was interested in was uh, space, the producers that surrounded him. Robert Wessler, Joan Richmond, Beth Fertig, Jeff Grounick. They were just great younger people and creative people. Remember, they were pioneers in this whole area of live television and sports. And they created the genre of live special events. And it had a liminality. The sociologists call this, or anthropologists call this, uh, liminality. This idea of a threshold where they were creative people at a time when nobody else was really thinking about it or doing it. But that was a very creative period. So that was up his alley. 
We will continue our story in a moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Brian Williams. Welcome back to We Interrupt This Broadcast. To underscore the magnitude of the main event, Cronkite was joined in the broadcast booth by Mercury 7 astronaut Wally Schirra and the science fiction author and futurist Arthur C. Clarke. They called it Walter to Walter coverage, Walter Cronkite and Wally Schirra. They looked at several different people, but they wanted an astronaut. Cronkite and Schirra meet and they just like each other. I mean, ultimately, it was Cronkite's call. And the other person, of course, is Arthur C. Clarke. I mean, you couldn't have a better, you know, trio. We call them anchor buddies, you know, with, with Cronkite. Often enough, <laughs> this is true. If you're going to have an anchor man or woman, remember that they are the show. You are there to enhance, help, add a word or two, but it's not your program. It was very clear that they wanted someone who not only knew the space program intimately, but would also, uh, let me use the word, behave himself. <laughs> you know, there there was a hierarchy there, and clearly it was Cronkite. I always say to people that the voice is amazing, but the other thing, because it's television, is his eyes. Cronkite's eyes, I think, were a central piece of the persona of Walter Cronkite. And um, I think producers, to their credit, at least as far as I know, try to maintain that serenity because, believe it or not, doing live broadcast of television, it's stressful. The moment of truth for TV, for NASA, for humanity arrived on July 20th, 1969, as astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin climbed from their capsule into a spindly lunar module called the Eagle and began their descent to the moon. There's always tense in a control room on certain things that are important to the mission, especially on lunar landing. It is tense and you're waiting to hear that they're down and those first words, you know, we've landed on the moon. Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Hold control, both auto descent, engine command override off. Engine arm off. 113 is in. We copy it down, Eagle. Houston, the Eagle has landed. Man on the moon. Wally Shira, Walter Cronkite. They were a great team. And so, in terms of knowing what was happening, too, Wally was always there to talk about it. As Walt will say, Wally, you know, what are they going to do right now or something? And he would talk. 
One of the best things I think I did in putting on the air, I was just watching like my 20 monitors in the control room. I quickly cut away from mission control or the limb, full limb mock-up, and I go to Walter. Oh, boy. Thank you. You're looking good here. Mm. What? Okay, we're going to be busy for a minute. Mm. After I'm on, take care of the defense. And he shakes his hand and he says, Wally, say something. I'm speechless. <laughs> I'm just trying to hold on to my breath. That is really something. I go to Wally, and he's got a tear coming out of his eye that he wipes away. I, I wasn't looking for that, but as I'm scanning, I see something happening, and I just grab that. And for me, that was, you know, just great to show the humanity in these two guys and how they felt about space. Of course, Walter was in love with space. I had just as long to prepare for that as NASA did. At the moment when it came, I found myself speechless. Oh, golly, it was all I could say. Oh, boy, yeah. And of course, he takes his glasses off, and he's, he's, there are tears in his eyes. Again, the eyes. You know, for him, this he was more famous than the astronauts. So, uh, I mean, Cronkite was the Homer telling the song of this space odyssey. Dick Nafsker. So we were in the control center. Oh, I was. The guys were out in the field getting ready, and we were nervous. But, you know, the first thing... The mission importance was a landing, and we landed. So the mission was considered a success at that point. So we were in the control center, and all of a sudden, I get a call. They're going to go out early. Well, now the things change. we got to get going now. The scan converters that were put in the sites, we actually trained engineers to be operators of that box. That wasn't like a lot of other equipment that you turn on and set the dial and leave it. You had to baby it. You had to sit there. We trained these guys. Well, when they went out early, lo and behold, the people on shift weren't the ones that were supposed to do the TV. So we had unknown operators. And so we were in a position of not knowing what we're going to get. So everything was up in the air. So it got a little nerve-wracking. And to top it off, we're getting ready, and one of the managers of NASA comes by and says to me, it better work. And all of a sudden, the whole mission was about TV. And it was priority. It wasn't in getting ready, but it was now. The control room was full of people. There were about about two dozen more people in that control room than, than had to be. And in the back row, we set up some tables for our researchers and associate producers. Also standing up there were the executives of CBS and CBS News and other administrative people. So when they landed, everybody's clapping. And so finally, I have to say, folks, please, quiet. I can't hear some of the guys on the intercom. You know, you're so wrapped up in what you have to do. You can't afford to break away from that line of thought. And so, you know, I just had to do what I had to do. And when Walter was talking, I would cut around. I would go to Mission Control. And everything kind of calmed down a bit until we were waiting 
you know, for them, him to come down and make his famous words. Everyone knew that Neil Armstrong was about to set foot on the moon, but no one knew what he'd say once he got there, including Armstrong himself. As he later explained to his biographer, he simply got to thinking, what can you say when you step off of something? Well, something about a step. They turned on the camera and uh, immediately it was upside down. And then he threw the switch and you could see the picture uh, jumped the other way. And then it was clear and then he started to step down. I wasn't sure at that point what we were going to get. But when we saw Neil coming down the ladder and he kept testing the bottom of the step to see how things were and then came back up a little and went down again. And then he finally went down to the bottom. It was clear. And uh, it was a relief, to say the least, that we got the picture and it was live. And we realized that our TV was going to work. One small step for man. We had some snow in the picture, and then all of a sudden parks came up, and it was clear. Now, clear not by broadcast standards, but by lunar standards, but what we expected at the best case. So we got a clear picture from parks, and now we had several hours of coverage coming up, and we were able to handle that. Uh, the signal was working, uh, the microwave was handling it, the NOSAT was handling it, all the processing was working and nothing was failing and the operators in, in Australia were my guys so they knew how to operate the scan without any problem. So at that point it was I guess a relief but we were so busy talking on the loops about what we had to do and what we had to adjust and make sure things were hooked up. Uh, we didn't have time to think about the, the success of it until they went back in and shut the door. <laughs> a global audience of roughly 600 million people, about a fifth of the world's population at the time, watched the live coverage of Armstrong's first step. In the U.S., an estimated 94% of all the televisions in the country were tuned to the mission. Of that number, over half the televisions in America were tuned to CBS coverage of the moment. Across town in New York, while NBC News didn't have Cronkite, they did have plans to steal some of that CBS News thunder. Danny Epstein was music director for what would have been a gargantuan music and variety show designed to air after the lunar landing. It didn't work out that way, the lunar landing special was to have been an eight-hour special while the astronauts slept after Eagle lands on the moon. We had prepared a worldwide show. NBC was tied into the entire world right here at 30 Rockefeller Plaza. Had this huge orchestra, Beverly Sills and Jerry Orbach singing moon songs, moon over Miami, moon over Brooklyn, shine on harvest moon. Charles Lawton and Elsa Lancaster were tied in from Australia to do readings. Charlton Heston was in London to do readings. And it was worldwide entertainment with home base being here at 30 Rockefeller. And that's where the orchestra was situated. We're all rehearsed. We rehearsed for days. We orchestrated and arranged and copied for days. 
They land on the moon and they're too excited to sleep. They're coming down the ladder. Program was scrapped. These guys were walking on the moon. I freaked. I just ran to the control room to watch what was happening. It was a moment never to be forgotten. Since the dawn of radio and television, whenever we hear the words, we interrupt this broadcast, it has usually meant something terrible has happened. That was not the case for the moon landing, though the sheer marvel of it, the threat of something perhaps going wrong, kept millions glued to their televisions. Walter Cronkite knew that, and he stayed on the air for 27 hours of Apollo 11 coverage. Thankfully, they came back, and they came back safe and sound. There were concerns about contamination, as you may remember. They put them in that incredibly long, long trailer, um, and then President Nixon was there to, to greet them. I was thinking, as, as, as you know, as you came down, and we knew it was a success, and it had only been eight days, just, just a week, a long week, that this is the greatest week in the history of the world since the creation. Because as a result of what happened in this week, the world is bigger, infinitely. And also, as I'm going to find on this trip around the world, and the Secretary Rogers will find that he covers the other countries in Asia. As a result of what you've done, the world's never been closer together before. And we just thank you for that. I missed all that. I probably was at a tracking site getting ready for the next mission, but Later on, I heard all those comments. I said, wow, 650 million people watched it, and uh, it was one of the most significant events ever. Then it dawned on me that, wow, we could have blown that because this is live TV. And every mile of cable, every piece of equipment we get, a failure, there's no backup. So we wouldn't have seen it live unless everything worked perfect and hundreds of engineers across the world were supporting us. And as you might suspect, while everybody took a deep breath and probably spent the rest of the summer on the beach in New Jersey and Long Island, the truth of the matter is uh, there was Apollo 12 to do. That You know, you knew that we're going to be doing this again, hopefully um, better. We will not have as much prominence as Apollo 11. Everybody was very happy and they realized that TV had been a smashing success worldwide. You know, in Australia, I was in Houston. My guys are in Australia. The King's Cross, where all the hotels are, a big, big area, it was packed with thousands of people. There were people standing in front of the apartment stores looking at TVs. It was amazing. Uh, Times Square, packed with people watching this moonwalk. I wouldn't want to have known that before we got the signal down. It was fine to know it afterwards, but, man, that would be frightening. If you messed up, all those people are watching to see TV for the moon, and it's up to you. And I always told everyone, no one knows who I am, but if it failed, boy, my my name would be all over the place. Remember, the crew got one shot at it. There was no guarantee they would stick the landing. No guarantee the rocket was going to fire to bring them home from the moon. A statement was prepared for President Nixon to deliver in the event that the crew was lost. But it all worked. And consider this. There were Americans born just after the Civil War who were alive to see us land on the moon. This was science fiction coming alive. And so for good reason, 
the coverage of the Apollo 11 mission is regarded as the single greatest and most influential broadcast in our history. Among those in the viewing audience, Philo T. Farnsworth, the man hailed as the inventor of television as we know it today. He uh, supposedly had turned to his wife and, and said that that finally confirmed that TV was worth it. Validating everything he had done to do, invent TV by the Apollo program, that, that it made it all worth it. That uh, TV has significance. It's something that can bring joy and can bring information and science to the world. NASA had validated the need and the benefits from TV. I'm Brian Williams. For more information about this episode and our series, please visit our website, weinterruptthisbroadcast.org. Now, please listen to this special message from Bill Curtis about the great work of the Broadcasters Foundation of America. Every day, broadcasters bring us the information and entertainment that enriches our lives and often saves lives. It's not only the person on air, it's the producers, engineers, management, sales, marketers, camera operators, and more. For more than 70 years, the Broadcasters Foundation of America, a 501c3 charity, has been a safety net, providing financial assistance to broadcasters and their families in acute need from a debilitating illness, tragic accident, or unthinkable catastrophe. Whether a retired broadcaster who can't afford life-saving medications, a family struggling to make ends meet after a crippling accident or severe damage from a hurricane to the home of a broadcaster in need, the Broadcasters Foundation has always been there to help those in our industry who need it most. Now more than ever, the Broadcasters Foundation is in need of your donations to continue its charitable mission. Please consider a donation today at broadcastersfoundation.org. That's broadcastersfoundation.org. On behalf of all our broadcasters in all areas of our industry, we thank you.